Hello, everyone. That Wings guy here for another episode. And I know you're shocked, but it is hot in Georgia in June. And I would not have known that had the news media not sent heat advisories out to inform me of this. I was just completely unaware. And uh, Ed, I know you're in Arkansas. Is it a little bit warm there? Yeah, we were getting away with a pretty mild summer until a few days ago, and now it's up in the high 90s. It hurt. I'm doing an event this weekend, and I've already looked at the forecast, and it's like 97 degrees is the predicted high. That's going to be great. So I was built for air conditioning. I try not to do outdoor stuff in July and August, June, July and August. Well, joining us today is Mr. Ed Monk. Ed, if you would introduce yourself to the audience. Everybody, my name is Ed Monk. Uh, my brother and I own Last Resort Farms Training about 30 miles south of Little Rock. I'm a retired Army officer, part-time police officer, former deputy sheriff, taught school for four years. And for about the last 14 years, uh, I got into studying and researching this threat of the active shooter. And in doing that, I've designed training, uh, both lecture, both consulting and training of unarmed staff and employees and training of armed people on specifically countering this threat of the active shooter. So that's kind of what I what I do and why I'm here today. So you have unique insight into this from multiple perspectives in that one, you were a school teacher. Two, you have worked the law enforcement side of the house. And then three, your military training has taught you how to study problems and prepare objectives and training and planning to deal with those. Yeah, when I first got into this, I didn't think my military experience really played a part because, you know, we never direct dealt directly with active shooters. But the bigger picture does because what combat, I was in tanks, uh, armor, what, what we train combat arms officers to do is to look at a threat or a potential threat and define it. What are its capabilities? What are its weaknesses? What are its strengths? What are its most likely courses of action? What are its weapons? What are its tactics, techniques, and procedures? And what environment do we expect to fight this enemy in? And then given that threat, come up with the best plan we can to quickly defeat it with the least amount of casualties and then develop a training plan to train our fighters how to implement that plan to defeat the enemy. And that's exactly what I have applied to this. Took me a while to realize that. And far too many people aren't doing that. They're not, you know, when the military looks at a threat and then does their best to create a plan to defeat it, one of the steps before we do the operation is we war game with somebody acting as the evil thinking creative enemy who sometimes gets in the way of our perfectly laid plan. And it makes us go back and change our plan because there is an enemy that has a vote. He wants to win just as bad as you do. Uh, and I think that's what the planners with this active shooting thing, they're skipping that plan. They're typing something in a book and saying, we have a plan and moving on. Yeah. yeah you know, and then, go ahead. No, go ahead. You know, my state law requires that every school have a school security plan. It doesn't say what has to be in that plan. It just requires yep. that they have to have one. So as long as there is something on paper that, hey, in this folder is the school security plan, they have complied with the law. And that may not be the best plan, but they have one. But my understanding, you know, so from the military perspective is that that wargaming process that you described is a constant process. Yes. Because you're constantly learning new things about the enemy, he's constantly adjusting and you're constantly updating that and, and checking it against your plan to make sure that you may not be perfect, but you've got the best one you can think of. Um, and yeah, what I refer to it as tab D, 
in the three ring binder. If you go to a school, let me see your plan. Tab A is fire, tab B is chemical spill, tab C is earthquake, and tab D is active shooter. And they've, they've got a plan. They've got the, the worst, like 170 pages was one was the longest I can remember a school's active uh-huh. shooter plan because they had found something online and downloaded it, printed it out, punched three holes in it, put it in tab D. And for anybody that showed up, they could show them the three ring binder and they, they've checked the block. They've got a plan. Right. When was the last time that a school student in the United States was killed by a fire or an earthquake? My memory was in the fifties was fire. I don't know. Earthquake. I right. don't know, but fire was in the fifties. And if my understanding is that modern fire code has pretty much eliminated that threat. Yes, probably exaggeratedly so, if, if that's an actual word, exaggeratedly. And what, one of my recommendations is we back off the fire code a little bit. And that, now the fire marshals around the world are gasping and beating against the computer screen. But there's several, there's so many things proposed for this active shooter thing that will do no good or actually make it worse. But there are a few things we can do, and a couple of them deal with changing the fire code yeah. because like no one is being hurt by fire because it's so draconian but we are having hundreds of kids shot every year so maybe we need to make some changes and ease up a little on the fire code if it will help in this active shooter response i have a fifth cousin twice removed that is the sheriff of a county in tennessee uh he was the chief deputy and his sheriff died making him the sheriff i kept my sheriff alive when i was the chief deputy precisely so that i would not become the sheriff um he, a small county in Tennessee, their population is under 10,000, I think. So they have elementary school, a middle school, and a high school. And after one of these big news-grabbing events, he researched and found a device called like the Barracuda Door Jam device or something like that, or Barracuda Door Arm or whatever. And it was a device that could be used to secure a door, you know, to block entry. And he started a fundraising effort to put one of those in every classroom in his county. The state fire marshal tried to block those efforts because it violated the fire code. It was infringing on his kingdom. And so he had to go to war with the state. Eventually, the state backed down and allowed it, I do believe. But that was just asinine. Yeah. God did not give us the fire code. We typed it so we can retype it. And so one thing we need in in most schools now, especially one story schools is the reaction to the fire alarm. If the fire alarm goes out, maybe instead of everybody filing out in a neat order and going out to a predictable place where they're all Mm -hmm. bunched up and and every student knows that and almost all middle and high school shooters are students of that school. Maybe, especially if it's a one story building, the teacher opens the door, sticks his head out and sniffs. Yeah. I, and if he doesn't see or hear any evidence of a fire, then maybe we stay in the classroom until something yeah. else happens. Now, if yeah. you're in a 10 story school and you're on the 10th floor, maybe it's something mm-hmm. different, yeah. but we need to change. We need a certain amount of leaders in every school to be able to deactivate the fire alarm, audible sound on their phone. Right. And, and the fire marshals are going to scream bloody murder at that, but they've got to be able to do that because you know um, whether you're an armed person already in the school, like an SRO or armed school staff, or you're a patrol cop responding, your ability to find, get close to, and stop the active shooter goes down by probably 90 to 95% if the fire alarm's going. Because you can't hear the shooting, you can't hear anything on the radio, you can't transmit on the radio. So, you know, the principal, the assistant principal, several people, several leaders ought to be able to get on their phone and turn the audible sound off if they determine, in fact, there is not a fire 
it's actually a shooter. Those two things need to be done. They, they can be done. And then technically it's not a fire code thing, but the, the, the Dr. Sheldon Coopers of the world and the electrical engineers have got to figure out how to make the fire alarms not go off due to the concussion of the gun inside of the building. Because a lot of active shooters, the fire alarm goes off, not because somebody pulled the alarm, but because the concussion of the gun sets them off. There's got to be some tinkering in the electrical engineering um, that can make that better and less yeah. sensitive to gunpowder. Well, what may be causing that too is that the concussion is causing dust to come out of the ceiling that, tiles. That is it. That is yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know what sets off a fire alarm, but maybe yeah. there's got to, we got to be able to improve it a little bit to where the gunshots don't set it off as often as it does. I may have thrown a training flashbang into the sheriff's office one day and seven years of dust came out of the ceiling tiles and made a full coating of dust in his office. Well, that, that famous video of the pawn shop robbery in Georgia, when he shot, you saw it. And then the yeah. video of the Pulse nightclub shooter, as mm -hmm. soon as he comes in the front door and starts firing, you can see. So yeah, we just, whatever sensors, they got to be able to be, be made better. I think it's got to be able to be done. That is an issue that I will bring up to the current administration tomorrow that we start looking at that as an option. And, and a technology thing that I think could help us is some kind of thin Kevlar. I don't know what the material is. Some kind of the thinnest inexpensive bullet proof or bullet retarding to be put on the top of tables and media centers and cafeterias. Oh. So they can flip the tables up on their sides and know it won't stop him, but he'll right. slow his rate down until somebody can stop him because nothing protects students inside of a cafeteria. And in high schools, that's the most likely place before or during lunch that the shooter is going to open up. There's, they're just in there, herded in there like cattle. And it's such a great opportunity to shoot a lot of people. But if we had some way to block some bullets and give the kids some options, I think that's got to be doable. And, you know, along with that, and I hesitate to say this on air because I don't want to coach anybody on how to, to effectively do this, but all of the lockdown drills and hardening of a building, none of that matters if the attack happens at ingress or egress. Yeah, the, every, almost everything is a double-edged sword. Mm -hmm. Whether you say harden the building, lock the doors, what – and that's where war gaming it. Oh, well, we'll just do this. Well, what if the enemy does this? Oh, crap. Yeah. All right, well, let's do this. Okay, then what if the enemy does this? Oh, crap. Yeah. You're not making it easy, and it's not easy. You yeah. have to consider a thinking enemy. Um, it's, it's almost like if we lock the doors, the shooter's going to show up with four guns and a 1,000 rounds of ammo and shake the door handle and go, oh, crap, it's locked, and turn around and leave. Right. You know, the, the Arapaho shooter intentionally came there with, holding a shotgun in the first round in the chamber was a slug intentionally to defeat the lock on the exterior door that he intended to go in. Yeah. So uh, they have, they have a plan. They've been probably planning this for months. Uh, mm -hmm. so, yeah. Hardening the lockdown drills, of course, don't work in the cafeteria. They don't work in the media center. They don't work on the playground and they're really made for the classroom hallway. Well, if, if your classroom is not bulletproof, they don't work there either. And Parkland showed us this. Right. He shot 24 people on the first floor in Parkland. 18 of those 24 were shot while they were inside their classroom behind a locked door. He never entered a classroom. He shot through the doors, shot 18 people through the doors. So lockdown drill is an illusion of security. Right. Okay, so let's get a million-dollar federal grant, and we'll make every classroom like a – we'll make it bulletproof, absolutely bulletproof. 
Okay, then what if he starts in the classroom? Now, how are the cops and EMS going to get in if you make right. it absolutely? Everything's a double-edged sword, yeah. right? Um, okay, I'll, I'll lock it down and we'll put armed guards at every door. Well, what about the playground? What about on the school bus? What about getting into the school? What about leaving the school? Like you say, ingress and egress. So it's, it's not like he's going to do one plan. And if you, if you make it hard for that, he, he's just going to stop. Right. You have to think through every plan. And to a certain extent, is, isn't it possible, or I don't want to ask a leading question, does hardening a building as far as ingress and egress create funnel points that are then successful to attack? Yes. Um, like, yeah, like you said, I'm going to shoot you in yeah. line to get in. If, we, yeah. if everyone has to come through, again, metal detectors, schools, right. give, us some, give us something we can write a check for and make this problem go away. Well, that, that's not the way it works. We need metal right. detectors. Well, I'm not saying metal detectors don't have any value for any problem, but in Red Lake High School, he, he walked up and shot the guard at the metal detector and then walked right through. So, again, a thinking, uh-huh. evil, creative enemy. And uh-huh. it's hard when I talk to superintendents, of course, they want to treat every school building the same so they're not accused of playing favorites with the elementary or the high school. So they want to treat them all the same, but that doesn't make sense because the shooter in the middle in the high school is almost guaranteed to be one of your own students who's already inside the building. So hardening those buildings is probably only going to have the negative effect for this threat and keep delaying police and EMS getting into the building because your shooter's already in the building. Your state law very well may have required you to send a bus to go get him and bring him into the building. So elementaries are different than the other two. I'm not a big fan of hardening buildings for this threat, but definitely not middle schools or high schools. Again, you you turn your elementary school into a prison, I'm going to shoot your kids on the playground or I'm going to shoot them getting out of their cars or out of the buses to get in the buildings. There's, if they want to come shoot your kids, they can come shoot your kids and nobody wants to hear that because it's ugly. Right. You have to plan for everything. Yeah, there is a law against murder. So just passing laws isn't going to stop this yep. thing. And, and, and locked doors, metal detectors, they all want something um, Again, the magic pill, something very easy, something, tell me what to type in. Tell me what to type into our policy that'll make us all safe. There is nothing right. that'll make you safe. Right. You can actually do things to increase your security and you can do things to lower your risk, uh, but there is nothing you can type, nothing you can buy. And they'll say, Ed, come train, tell us how to keep our kids safe. I can't tell you how to keep your kids safe. I can tell you things that I think will increase your security by lowering your victim count and making mm-hmm. you less likely to be selected as a target. But you got to be ready for him if he comes, because I can't tell you anything to do, buy, type, or train on that'll guarantee he won't come to you. Ten school shootings happened at schools with police present, SROs present, and the shooters in each were students of those schools who knew their school had a cop and they came anyway. So having uniformed in, in Santa Fe, Texas, two uniformed cops on that school campus that day. The schools on campus do have some deterrent factor. I, I don't know how to measure it, but what I can tell you is it's not a guarantee they won't come. And it's not a guarantee if they do come, you'll have a low victim count because Columbine, Parkland, and Santa Fe all had double digit victim counts, even though they had cops on campus. Okay. What recommendations would you make? Very easy. The big overall recommendation for schools, you, we have to do a 180. Um, we have to go from passive response plans, which is hunker down, do the best we can until somebody comes here and saves us to immediately, we are going to counterattack and stop this guy in the first 30 seconds of the attack. Now, doing there's you can do that armed or you can do it unarmed. 
Armed has a much better success rate and it will, can happen much more quickly. But there are things you can do even if you decide to go unarmed or you could do before the armed person gets there. Um, so in armed, again, the gun or a badge or the combination of both is not a magic force field that'll keep the shooter off of the property. So just having guns on campus is, is no magic pill either, whether that gun has a badge on it or in some of the schools I work with that have armed staff, it's a good old boy network. All the armed staff are up in the administrative building. They're not in the cafeterias and in the front offices and on the playgrounds where the shooter's going to show up. So it's, it, it, again, it doesn't have the effect. So if you're going to have armed, you have to have enough of them and enough is going to vary on the size of the school. You have to have enough of them geographically located so that it is very almost guaranteed that one, at least one of your armed staff will hear or see the first shot of the attack. The reason that is magic is if the person who's going to stop this can hear or see the first shot, we now no longer have to have a 911 call, which takes one to four minutes, then the radio call generated by that 911 call, then police travel time, then police entry, and then police action. All of that takes a, a multiple minutes, all, all those minutes he's shooting somebody every few seconds. If the person that's going to stop it can hear it or see it, we eliminate all that time suck and the person stops it in the first minute, preferably the first 30 seconds. Not only does that produce a low victim count, but the few people we did let get shot before we stopped it can immediately get treated and evacuated. So they have a better chance of survival. So any, in a high school or middle school, anytime kids are in the cafeteria, you have to have armed presence there, preferably two for redundancy. Same in the front office. Front office is another high, high value target. If you got an elementary school, any, always the front entrance and anytime the kids are on the uh, playground, you have to have an armed presence, at least one, preferably two. And then throughout the classrooms, my general recommendation is two staff members armed in each wing of each floor for redundancy. So if you're in a, if in a wing on a floor, you're probably going to hear gunshots go off. So if you and I are on the east wing, second floor, if you had a sick day today, I'm still here. Next week, if I take my kids on a field trip to the science museum, you're still here. And we also don't have the same lunch period. You eat at a different time than I eat. And if you go downstairs to meet with the principal or make photocopies, I'm up here. It's not a guarantee at all, but it, there's his, history shows us that has a good chance because 17 out of 19 times when a good person that had a gun was close enough to hear or see the start of the attack, we have single digit victims. 17 out of 19 times, that's 89%. I'm going to push a model that has an 89% success rate until someone shows me one that historically has a 90 or better. And I can't even want, find one that has a 50% better of having single digit victim counts. Right. That's all it is. Math and time. You know, when you read social media posts and, and, and see talking heads on, on TV and the like, or you're sitting around the barbershop after one of these incidents, everybody comes up with all these, you need to harden the schools, you need to arm the staff, and you know, all those conversations that take place. And we need to point out that it may not be the fact that the school system itself is reluctant or whatever. There could be just a complete legal quagmire set up by state laws that completely hamper this. And for example, Ohio several years ago passed the law to allow teachers to be armed or staff to be armed on campus the courts interpreted that law as, well, they have to go to the police academy in order to do that. Well, that's 700 and something hours in Ohio that they've got to be at. That's longer than the summer for going to school. 
Yeah. So that completely shut down that program. So the state legislature had to this session come back and change that law. Up until several years ago, it was illegal in my state of Georgia for school staff to be armed on campus. So or one of my just excruciating ones is let's get veterans to volunteer to go guard the schools. Well, if it's a felony for them to be on campus armed, you know that we have a state law problem. And, and where where that exists, it needs to be fixed. And like right. even some places where it's not impossible, it's bureaucratically cumbersome. Like here in Arkansas, there's a whole program the right. school has to go through. Um, it, it's just in a lot of schools like yeah, we might we'll yeah. do it otherwise, but we just don't want to go through this bureaucratic nut roll to get right. it done. The state needs to. This is the only and people will say, Ed, you're a gun guy. And I am. But this is this is not because of my hobby. We have a COVID problem, but I've never suggested arming people or allowing people to be armed to help COVID because there's no data link. But this is the only way that has a better than 50% chance. It's got an 89% success rate and armed citizens have never shot the wrong person responding to an active shooter. Cops have five times. Cops have shot each other by accident and killed each other by accident twice. Armed citizens have stopped more active shooters uh, in the first early stages of the attack than cops have. And it's not because citizens are better than cops. It's because active shooters are a subset of violent criminals and violent criminals go out of their way usually to not start their violence right in front of a uniformed cop. So out of the few cops who have stopped it early, about half of them are off duty. And, and that's why the, the active shooter didn't know that it, there was a cop there carrying a gun. So we... The, the clock is so important, and that's what most people aren't taking in consideration. People say, well, we want a plan to stop the active shooter. That's not enough. If your plan is just to stop the active shooter, I can guarantee your plan will be successful because they will all eventually stop. The plan has to be to stop him quickly, to stop him in the first 30 seconds, and no one is figuring in that clock. And if you're going to stop him in the first 30 seconds, it has to be somebody who's already there. If any organization including a school, if any organization, if their plan to stop an active shooter requires a 911 call to put that plan into action, you are guaranteed to have double digits, 10 or more. It's probably going to be 20 or more. How much above 10, I can't tell you because there's too many variables, but I can tell you it's going to be 10 or more because by the time the first 911 operator gets the first call about the shooting, you will be past 10. So if you don't want more than 10, you can't have a plan that requires a 911 call for somebody else to come solve this. You got to solve it. Now we got to call 911 because the ambulances need to get here. The cops got to get here to secure the crime scene, do the investigation, clear the building and do all those other things. Um, but I don't want patrol cops solving this problem because when patrol cops cause this problem, they get there so late, we've got huge body counts. I want somebody there. I don't care if it's a cop or not a cop. I want somebody there to stop it in the first 30 seconds. And that's what we're not doing. We're not changing plans in schools and other organizations from passive hunker down, do the best we can till the cavalry comes and saves us to let's stop this SLB us. Let's stop him aggressively, violently, ruthlessly in the first 30 seconds. You know, I spent a good bit of my life on college campuses due to also being in the yep. academic world. And I was standing outside of a four story classroom one day after one of these incidents and someone was ranting, raving, and, and maybe that's not a fair way to say it, but they were in my ear about active shooters. So I'll put it that way. And, you know, all this stuff that needs to be done. I said, all right, I want you to look up 
how many stores are in that building right there? And they said, four. I said, I'm standing here right here talking with you. If someone in that fourth floor corner room right there that we're looking at, if they start shooting right now and I leave this spot and I run up there to engage them, how many people can they kill before I get there? Because I've got to get into that building and get up four flights of stairs and down that hallway to that building. And by, and by the time yeah. you get up to the fourth, he may have already gone down to the second. Right. Yeah. right. But let's take that same scenario. If there's someone in that room or on that floor when it breaks out, if they can run in and stop it, will there be less casualties than if I have to leave from right here? And of course, if they're being intellectually honest, well, yeah, of course it would. Okay, now imagine I'm not starting from right here. I'm three miles away and someone in that room has to make the 911 call. It has to get relayed to me and then I have to run lights and sirens through traffic to get to the spot and then start that process. That's the equation we're looking at. And so Parkland um, had an SRO, a deputy who got to the, ed, the, the side of the building while the shooter was shooting, heard the shots. So we got gunshots in building 1200, didn't go in. Painted as a coward, I, I would not argue that point. But I heard people say, see, if that deputy had gone in, then kids wouldn't have got shot. I was like, no, 24 of them would have got shot. As he got to the east side of that building, because he was in another building when the shooting started. He was not yeah. in the building. Right. Uh, when he got there, the last two people were being shot on the other side of the first floor. He could, if that had been the love child of Chuck Norris and Clint Eastwood, the most aggressive, well-trained cop in the world, and rushed in that building, he could not have saved the 24 shot on the first floor. Now, he could have stopped him from shooting the people on the third floor. But that's what people say. Well, you know, Parkland was that way because the SRO didn't go in. If he'd have gone in, none of those people would have been shot. Now, 24 of them still would have been shot because math it's math and time. Yeah. Would have reduced the casualties, but wouldn't have prevented the casualties. Yes. Yeah. Could have kept, could have kept it to 24, but 24 is too high for me. Right. I, I, single digit is attainable. And another great thing about single digits is it doesn't require a superintendent to set a number. In the Army, the, the Army, the, the S3 and the commander made a plan, and they looked at the S1 who did casualty uh, estimation and treatment and said, one, what's our, what's, what's our estimated casualty if we do this plan? The S1 used calculations and historical data and said, sir, we, we can plan on these casualties. And the commander would say, okay, I accept that or no, that's too high, so let's redo the plan, right? If you ask a superintendent or a principal, what's the maximum acceptable number of shot people to have in your school if an active shooter shows up? They're not going to say that. Number one, they, they just don't want to think about it. But two, they don't want to be on public record as saying, I'll, I'll accept nine of my kids being shot. So what I offered the single digit doesn't require them to pick a number. And zero, yeah. single digit could be zero. Right. So, so they, have right. an, they have an easier way to say it, and it's attainable. Well, I want zero. I know what you want, but I can't give you a plan that has a good chance at zero. And so what one of my sayings is these leaders got to get past hope and past zero. There's nothing wrong with hoping the active shooter does never shoots anybody again. But you, you got to get beyond hope and plan like he's coming to you tomorrow. If you're not planning like he's coming to your organization, school, church, business, tomorrow you're not adequately planning and you got to get past zero. Well, I want zero. I know you want zero. I know you're hoping for zero, but you got to get past zero because if you don't get past zero and he shows up and shoots one person, your plan has failed. You, or you don't have a plan. now. The only plan active is his. 
And I'm telling you, his is going to suck for you really bad. So he's going to show up hoping for 50 or more. You want zero, right? Your negotiation starts at his first shot. And then you two negotiate it out and determine what the number is going to be. But he's coming there wanting 50 or more. If you don't interdict that, stop that, then he's probably going to get what he wants unless his gun malfunctions or something odd happens. Right. Well, let's cheer people up for a minute and talk about a few success stories that you've had with getting schools to implement some things. Uh, I'm going to have to disappoint you there. Um, as, as far as complete, I found Jesus, complete turnaround. So here's what I've seen. I have seen some success, although, you know, Uvalde, there's got some negative things with law enforcement. I have, and that's what we tend to hear about are things that we think are not good. I have seen some success over the last 10 years with churches and law enforcement. Yeah, there's been some mistakes, but by and large, I've seen great, not great, great improvement uh, where with churches and law enforcement. The problem is, and you touched on it, in a lot of states, including the ones I've lived in, churches don't have the political or legal hurdles that schools have. So with schools, have I gone into one that was against arming and completely went armed and, and, and did it right? No, unfortunately, no. But some successes I've had are one school district, uh, the, the armed school staff, when I went in there, they said, now, you know, we know we're, we're safe about this. So we keep them locked up in boxes in our office. So don't think we carry them because that would be unsafe. I was like, oh, really? So what happens if you're in the cafeteria when the shooting starts in the cafeteria? So again, war game. You've got to, if, if you're not one of the first ones shot, you've got to run down to your office, remember your code, punch your code in, get your gun out, run back. How many has he shot by that? Oh, crap. Yeah. Or what if you're not even in that? What if you're in another school, Mr. Superintendent, and you're in the middle school when the shooting starts at the high school? Now you got to get in your car, drive back to your office. So one small success was that school, at least last I knew, changed to where the armed staff they had were carrying. And, and I've had a small success of getting schools to ch- relax their dress code. Most schools I've been at, or some schools, they have a very strict dress code for the male teachers, but the females can wear anything that, you know, males have to wear a tie. Females don't have to wear a tie. Males have to tuck their shirts in. Females don't have to tuck their blouses in. But then that, that makes it difficult if you're going to have an armed staff and concealed carry. So I've had one success where they relax the dress code to make it better not only easier, but easier to carry a service size pistol that would be the, the better thing to go up against these people. Um, and, and to do training like I train, you, there's mandatory training that goes with the certification here in Arkansas. But the few that train with me say, yeah, we do that because it's a check the block and we got to do it, but there's no value to it. So we're going to pay you come to you, even though it's not required, because we know what's more realistic. And it gives us more confidence that if this happened, we could actually do it. And then I've, some great successes with unarmed. Um, so the military and, and schools, and I've been employees in both, but the Army and schools like everybody to not to make their own individual decisions, for everybody to do what they're told and to do the same thing at the same time, because that's order mm-hmm. and it's easy, it's easy to inspect, right? So they want lockdown drill, lockdown drill, active shooter lockdown drill, they want everybody to do the same thing, no matter where they are in the school and where they are in relation to where the shooter is, which is not a good plan, but it's easy to type and easy to inspect. And then the assistant principal in charge of security walks around with a clipboard, looks in all the classrooms and says, yes, everybody did what we typed in the plan, successful, call that up. But that's not good. So when I go into schools, I say, 
three options if every individual has. Fight, flee, barricade. Explain the options. Explain how they do it. Explain why they would do each. And, of course, you can switch if you start doing one and decide it's better to do the other. And then give, tell them you decide what you do. You don't do what the, the great God of the PA loudspeaker system that comes over tells you to do. They may tell you, you ha- we have a shooter in the building. We have a shooter in the cafeteria. We have a shooter on the first floor. Given that info or what you see or hear, then you decide which is best for you. So we train the staff on things like this, and then we say fight, flee, barricade, and then we teach them methods to fight, even unarmed. Teach them how to fight. Teach them the best place to fight him, to take away his advantage of the gun. We teach them weapons, not guns, weapons that are available or that can be brought into the school that can be used. Um, we teach them how to barricade. And we say, okay, now go back to your work, you know, media center person, go there. School teacher, go in your cafeteria worker, look around and assess. What are your fight options? What are your fight weapons? What are your barricade options? Uh, what are your flea options? Both, you know, standard run out the door, break windows, break ceiling tiles, drywall breakthrough. And so I, I remember probably the first school I consulted with after going through this, we, we, the final stage is what we call the walk around. We'll, we'll, me and the principal we, and everybody walks around to cross pollinate. And we walked into this elderly female teacher's room and we got to barricade. And she said, you know, I've taught in this room for over 20 years, but there's a six foot bookcase back there in the back corner, been there forever. I, I determined that, you know, it works just as good right by the door. So now here, if I decide we're going to barricade because the shooter's right outside our door and fleeing would not be a good idea, I get three of my male students up and we practice this, pushing that bookcase in front of the door. He's not coming in, not without a bulldozer. And now I get 10 to 12 inches of ballistic protection with those books because it's, it's full. She, being told you have the freedom to look around and do what makes sense for you. She thought of that all by herself. Um, and that's the kind of magic that can happen when you let people, you know, they have skin in the game. If, if the shooter comes in there, it's them. And then you have to tell people, everybody gets to make their own decision, even the students and all. They'll have a nightmare about that. You, you tell me a little third grader gets to make his own choice. That's exactly what I'm telling you, because he may be in the bathroom when this happened. He may be down at the front office or like in the first room in Sandy Hook, the two adults could be, there were two adults. The teacher could get shot first. Now they got no supervision. And because 11 kids decided to run out of that room after their adults had been killed with no help or supervision, they decided that they lived because of that. And if Mr. Weems classroom is right outside the cafeteria, when he starts shooting in the cafeteria, Weems may decide something different is best than if Mr. Monk's classroom is on the second floor on the opposite end of the building. Mm-hmm. makes no sense for me and you to do the same thing, given our two different uh different things. And then we have to teach them that this is a rare, unique, different day than any other. So you can do things today that otherwise you couldn't do. On any other day, if you are violent, ruthlessly violent against another person, you're probably going to be punished for that. But on this day, if it saves innocent life, be as ruthless and violent as you need to be. If you break a window on any other day, if you run off campus without permission on any other day, it's not allowed. But on this day, it's actually encouraged if it saves lives. And we're going to teach you how to fight. Yes, we're going to teach how to be violent in this situation and give you skills and knowledge. We're going to teach you what a gun reload looks like. And we're going to teach you what a gun malfunction looks like 
so that you can identify that five to 20 second window there that where the gun won't work. So you can choose that window of opportunity to flee or to fight. And I show them examples in active shooters where the active shooter, either they ran and got away because of a reloader malfunction, or they chose to fight during that time and did so successfully. If you don't understand what a reloader malfunction is, then you don't know about that opportunity. And to know to fight them in the door when they're the most vulnerable. Um, and just to fight and give success stories. Now, unfortunately, I can give you a list of unsuccessful attempts of unarmed people trying to fight active shooters, but I can give you a list of success stories and some videos where brave people fought. And because they did, the victim count was quite a bit lower than had they not. Um, the students that stopped the thirst, and now he shot, I want to say, 24 people in the cafeteria before students stopped him, but then they held him for eight minutes until cops got so, you know, yeah, he shot 24 and that's horrible, but he came in there with over a thousand rounds of ammo and three guns. Had those students not jumped, him, no telling how many would STEM high school is another one where three students, one of which died. Um, but those heroes, those three students jumped up and tackled the guy before he shot anybody. Teacher in, I think, Indiana, I could be wrong there, a teacher uh, rushed and got shot two or three times while he was rushing at that student, uh, the Seattle Pacific University. Uh, a student, a senior student barefooted in this academic building, rushed and pepper sprayed and tackled the guy during a reload of his shotgun. So you can show them that these people can be fought, uh, how to do it to give them an edge. And we could, even if they don't go armed, which by far is the best solution, we can still, I think, lower the victim count if we change our mentality and actually train how to fight quickly and keep the victim count low. And then, like I said, we can probably save more lives by getting EMS. Well, I think one thing we can talk about here, too, is all right, once the threat has stopped, by whatever means it has been stopped, we probably have critically wounded people on the scene. So yep. now we get into the realm of trauma care. Yep. And so the, I think that that's something that schools and churches and any other you know em, employers can all be looking at and addressing if we do trauma care training we stage trauma kits in bulk everything those are things that it may not even be active shooter it could be a, a structural collapse or something that that we can implement that and that's a non-political issue that we may see some success right in i know we had success with that in my county yeah and i would say if active shooters didn't exist had never existed Teaching staff and students trauma care is just a good thing anyway, mm -hmm. because at some point in their life, anybody that lives a normal lifespan and never comes across somebody with extreme trauma, like a car accident, is a pretty lucky person. That's just a life skill that ought to be taught regardless of even if there weren't active shooters. But if there is one, they can save lives. And, and I can remember back before I got this training, I would have thought the same thing that a lot of people, oh, Ed, that's medical, that's doctor stuff, I can't learn. And you and I, it's, it's really four very simple things. If infantry soldiers and tankers in the army can be taught, um, it, it's there are four things. It's really very simple, and the and the trauma equipment is not that expensive. And I doubt there's schools around the country that couldn't go out and find some company benefactor to even sponsor and pay for this stuff. Right. Uh, and then I would love it if a school never had an active shooter, but every year so many hundreds of kids graduated with some minimal understanding of how to treat trauma if they got in a car accident or had an accident at work or any, anything else. That's just a good thing beyond the active shooter. Yeah, we got a hospital donated $41,000 yeah. 
for us to buy, assemble bulk store uh, trauma kits. And we have them in yeah, yeah, two 10 kit bags in every school. And then we go, we work with the school staff on the use of those kits and multiple people in the school know where they are. And their job is when the event is over, they come running to the scene with those kits. So that as responding deputies, as responding, you know, volunteer medical first responders, we have a network of those in our county. As they're arriving on scene, here's a bag of 10 trauma kits that they have to work with, you know, for, for injured patients. And again, we're talking about shooters. That could be a tornado hits the school. Or in some places in the country, earthquakes. Yep. Yeah. And those are all very real possibilities in which those can go into. And folks, we don't have to have a debate about arming staff or hardening schools or mental health to do that. That's apolitical. Like I said, even if active shooters never existed, that, you know what, um, starting in 10th grade, I went to school here where I am now, uh, junior ROTC came to our school. And if you took away the uniforms and all the military stuff, what it, it, it taught, our junior ROTC in high school taught life skills. It taught map reading, um, mm-hmm. c- citizen responsibility. It taught first aid. Yeah. Just life skills um, ought to be taught. And we, again, beyond just the individual trauma treatment, when we go into schools, we can train them about casualty collection points, you know, given the most likely places the shootings to happen. So if it happens in the cafeteria, we're going to gather the casualties at this exit to the cafeteria. If it happens in the front office here, we're going to have a team designed to guide the EMS and aid the EMS. And that'll just help um, keep the victim, the victim count low, but also the mortality rate. The ones that have been shot, uh, more of them will live. Thank goodness. And we can teach them. I can't remember the school, but there was a no disrespect. There was an overweight quite a bit overweight uh, teacher that had been shot with one of the victims and the people there figured out, get her in an office chair with wheels. And they got, that's how they got her. I said, we can't pick her up, you know, we, but we can, if we can get her in this cart or chair with wheels teaching non-standard evacuation. And that if, if we live way out in the County and it's going to be a while before the ambulances get here, you know, school van, school bus, privately owned vehicle, there's all different ways uh, that we can get them out. Right. Um, the Las Vegas shooting, there were, I think, seven that arrived by paid car. So Uber, Lyft, seven of the victims arrived at one private Sunset Hospital by paid car. So think out of the box. Think of what's the quickest way uh, to stop this guy and then the quickest way to treat him. All right. Um, let's talk about the people who do this, the bad guys, for a moment. Yeah. Are there commonalities that you see? Are there recurring demographics as far as their own psychotropic drugs or they grew up in a split household? What are you seeing in the data? I, I haven't, I don't really organize that. I don't study that data, so I can't say anything definitively. Um, one thing I heard a speaker say at one conference that kind of made sense to me is most of them have a perceived loss or grievance. You know, and, and we may not agree, but to them, they mm-hmm. perceive it. So a lost job, a demotion, a girlfriend broke up, a family member died. And that's a grief, you know, that's a loss yep. um, or somebody done me wrong or life done me wrong. Or, uh, you know, the incel, the I can't I can't have sex. I can't convince a person of the other of the other gender to have sex with me. Incel involuntarily celibate. Some of them, that's the reason they do it. You could say that's a perceived loss. That kind of mm-hmm. makes sense to me. 
Um, that's why they would go do this. And we may not agree with them, but that seems right. The fatherless homes, I haven't done the data, but I know I can counter that by rattling off several active shooters that not only came from homes with fathers, but two parents and by all accounts, you know, well-to-do good parents, you know, had other kids that didn't go off the deep end and shoot people. I'm not saying that couldn't contribute to it. Um, I haven't looked at that in a while. Several of them were on some kind of psychotic drugs. Um, I don't know. I'm not an expert in that field. I don't know if, you know, they call it practicing medicine for a reason. And one of my huge surprises, one of my many huge surprises when I started teaching school in 2007 after retiring from the army was how, and I've taught at a very good school, a, like one of the top four or five in the state, um, well-to-do, but how many of the kids were on those drugs? But before entering that school and that environment, I would have thought, I don't know, one out of a hundred, maybe it's pretty rare. No, like 60%, way over half the kids were on drugs and on the, you know, prescribed psychological drugs. And several of them would tell me they're having problems. They changed my dosage. The doctor changed the type and I'm, I can't concentrate. I'm having visions and it, it messes with their head. So they call it practicing medicine for a reason. And, and a few of them did it after they stopped taking the medicine that they were prescribed. Is that why did that, did that have a thing and pushing them over the edge? I don't, I don't know. Uh, our mutual acquaintance, Greg Elifritz, uh, posted an article this past week in his weekend knowledge dump um, about two professors that have studied this issue. And there was one paragraph in, in that article that he posted that, that kind of struck me. They said, every last one of these events is actually a suicide. They're just taking out as many people with them as they go. Yeah, like they, they enter this situation expecting to be dead at the end of it. Most of them do. They know when they fire their first shot, they're going to end the day in the morgue or in the prison or in the hospital on the way to one of those two. Um, you know, it's not legal. It's not ethical. It's not moral. But you can at least follow the reasoning of uh, my boss fired me, done me wrong. I'm going to go kill my boss. You can follow that logic. But just the world, somebody in the world's done me wrong. So I'm going to go in this school, this mall, this church and shoot a bunch of people I don't know that have never affected me in any way, just so that they feel the pain that I feel. I can't follow that logic, um, but, but it exists. I don't attempt to understand them. I just attempt right. to try to deal with it and right. make the, the harm they cause less. Right. So if, if we think of it in say that suicidal parameter, have you seen reluctance on the part of school staff to like gather intelligence and try to like, we recognize from student X over here that they're showing signs of going down this path. Has there been reluctance on their part to gather intelligence and to alert authorities on that? Understand I have visibility on very few schools and especially to know something like that. Yeah. But on the very few that I've seen, it's actually the opposite. They're, they're kind of over um, looking at stuff and it's, it's gotten to where, you know, not not jokingly say I'm going to shoot up a school tomorrow, but just yeah. any kind, you know, if you're taking a picture with your gun and the dead deer you and your dad just shot, you know, that gets reported and maybe he needs a counselor and yeah. maybe we need to alert law enforcement on this. I, I think it's gone over. There have been shooters in the past that clearly told people what they were going to do. And I don't see that anymore. I, what I see is 
they have an anonymous account on certain chat rooms and they might say something in the day or the hours before they do it, but there's no way of finding them before it happens. So they leave a trail, but we don't know it at the time. Um, very few here recently that I can think of made any kind of over told people, you know, days leading up to it, like Bethel, Alaska is the one that I think of where that was pretty obvious. And then you have the one like Parkland with 13 years of continuous bad, including violent and threatening behavior. But then you have New Life Church in Colorado where there was absolutely no sign. He'd never had an issue with cops, schools, parents, totally perfectly behaved up until the point he decided to try to kill a bunch of people. So I don't, I, I, I'm not well versed in the predicting thing. I mean, definitely if you see something that looks odd, do it. But that made me think of in the school I taught at in Kentucky, somebody in the girl's bathroom on a Friday wrote, I'm coming to school Monday and shooting up the school. Okay. Very unlikely that that's actual. Uh, it's probably a joke, but now you can't, knowing that you cannot not overreact because so uh, Monday I come to school and there's, uh, I counted 12. I was told there were 16 cops at that school. Every entrance had at least one. They were in the hallways. So that was an overreaction. But, but what did it show? When they actually thought, hey, there's a threat, they flooded the school with armed people so that no matter where it might start, they could get to it and end it quickly. Yeah. But the shooters very rarely tip their hat that obviously. So right. then a day, two days later, there was, there was no cop in the school anymore. So we went back to uh -huh. we hit the snooze button and went back to normal. Yeah, that has been my experience as well, is that there is... Now, I can't say as far as like their day to day, what they're seeing with with students and stuff in the school, but not a reluctance to call us when they get these things like somebody writes on a, on a board in a classroom, I'm going to shoot up the school or someone makes a joke like that or they're posting something and someone looks at it and says, oh, this looks like they could do it. We get those calls, but. And I understand for the, for the audience, it's been a year and a half since I've been actively involved in that response. Um, so my information on that's a little bit dated. We would get those type of calls and you go look at it and there would be nothing overt. There would be nothing concrete that, we, that was actionable on law enforcement's part. And one thing you have to understand, you know, the Constitution and the Fifth Amendment yeah, you, know, you may not be deprived of your life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The system is set up to punish people who offend. It's not set up to effectively deal with stopping people who may offend. Punishing people who you can prove beyond a reasonably doubt offended. Right. Yeah, well, Pulse Nightclub. Um, Pulse Nightclub, there were a couple of calls on that guy. The FBI investigated. Hey, this guy mm -hmm. said some things. So, okay, that gives us... Right. enough to go talk to the person and get a consensual. Right. But then if he doesn't say, yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm probably going to shoot up Disney world. And, you know, yeah. then they can't, the FBI knew about him and did nothing. Well, they did what they could, which was mm -hmm. consensual and, you know, right. interview. And that did not lead to more evidence for an arrest or an investigation. So they had to stop right. where they had to stop. But people, yeah. people that don't understand that the cops knew about yeah. him. Yeah. They knew about him, right. um, but it wasn't enough. Well, you know, and one thing the audience needs to understand as well is there are federal laws that govern what information the schools can release as far as about the disciplinary records and stuff involving a student. 
um, or the educational records involving a student. It's called the FERPA, F-E-R-P-A Act. It's very similar to HIPAA, which most people will be familiar with, the healthcare information. So we would deal with something at school and it, the word's going to get out that, oh, the sheriff's office is responding to something and dealing with it at school. And so then the word spreads to all around the community, oh, there's been a threat, everything, and they demand, and I understand that they would want to know what happened, but we would be barred by FERPA from actually saying, yes, student John Smith or Sally Smith did X, we looked at it, and we determined it not to be a credible threat. All we could say was a student did such and such, and we've looked at it, and we don't believe there's a credible ongoing threat to the school, and then people, well, you're just covering things up, etc. Okay, the children of every sheriff's deputy that has children in this school system are all at school today or tomorrow. If we thought there was a an ongoing threat, would we send our children to school? And some people would get to see that answer and go, well, okay, yeah, that makes sense. If they're sending their own children, they must not think it's a big deal. Other people would respond, that's a very flippant answer. I demand to know. Well, I'm not going to prison to satisfy your need to know. And there is that whole juxtaposition and that whole legal quagmire that is attached to all of these issues that goes beyond just the response plans and who has control of the response plan. The sheriff or the chief can say, I want a master key that gets me through every exterior door and that opens up every interior door. And if the school system says, no, we're not doing that, sheriff or chief are out of luck unless there's a law that says they can demand that. There's no single give, entity. Give them a key and then six months later they change their locks and don't. That, that's what normally happens. <laughs> that happened to us here. Yeah, it, I remember it. it uh, at one conference of Santa Fe, a, a cop that uh, responded to Santa Fe, of course, you know, they got the, got the shooter in custody, but they have to clear this building and it's a pretty big building. And he said, he's, he's communicating with people outside looking, the police looking at the floor plan of the school. And I can't remember the numbers, but he's like, you know, room 319 cleared, Roger, room 319 cleared, room 321 cleared, Roger, room 323 cleared. There's not a room 323. Yeah, there is. I'm, I'm standing right outside of it. We just cleared it. No, no, the, the wing stops. They had an old floor plan. So uh -huh. that happens too. Yeah. And I get just to divert, digress back to the hardening thing again. All right. We still got schools in our county that were built in the 1950s. Some of those is architecturally is only so much you can do to them. Where if I'm, if we're sitting down to design a new school now, we can design features in to it and build features in that help with the response and the planning all the other hardening things so to speak but are you going to shut down a school that said you know do you have the resources to just we're going to level the school and build a new one and can we get it done by the time school starts back in august and all That's for just something that though while catastrophic has a point zero 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 something chance yeah so um it, this is the National School Safety Conference in July back in New Orleans. I can't remember where this school was, but they showed us they, they were going to build a new school anyway. So, but mm -hmm. they engineered into it with the active shooter in mind. And so one of the, none of the halls were straight because if you got a long hole, he can shoot down the hall and get mm -hmm. a lot of people. So they, they, everything was curved. Um, and what they found out after the school opened and ran for a while was that what that allowed was students to do bad things because they couldn't be seen because of all these curves and nooks. So the double-edged sword, the unintended consequence. 
um, that happens. Yeah. Yep. Every plan uh, fails at contact with the enemy. Yep. A thinking, evil, adaptive enemy. Um, Exactly. So it's just plan on what's most likely, but react to whatever happens. And of course, the whole idea of a lockdown of a building the size of a school is laughable. Because I guarantee you can go to most of those buildings and you can find some way into the building. Now, what I tell them is lockdown drills have a purpose. There is, mm-hmm. but the active shooter is not one of them. Mm-hmm. Like getting down under the tables may be the right thing to do for a tornado, but it's it's not for the active shooter. So mm-hmm. let's say there's a convenience store down the road from the school and it gets robbed and the guy got away on foot. Okay, lock down the school, guard the exterior entrances. Or mm-hmm. they, got a, they got a tip, little Eddie Monk in the 10th grade, has something in his locker, gun, drugs. So before we can get the cops in and start, we're going to lock down the school. Nobody's going to change rooms. Mm-hmm. No one's going to go to the bat. We're going to lock down the school to take mm-hmm. care of that until it's over. So there are reasons to do lockdowns, I think, that have value. But for an active shooter, they, they have the potential to actually cause much worse. And not going to go into detail, but there are things that sh- students who attack their own schools, which is usually middle school or high school, they could use the knowledge of a lockdown drill to do a lot more damage than they have. Um, yeah. And we'll go into detail, but we have yeah. not seen how bad it can be yet by, by a long stretch. Yeah. Well, what on this topic would you like to talk about that I have failed to ask you about? Well, I just say overall, it's hard to understand why we keep failing at this. You know, COVID kind of took the country by surprise. You, you can understand some things not being foreseen, some missteps, something totally new. Um, But when we've had something for over 30 years and we keep seeing that doing X, Y, and Z gives us a really bad result. If you think 20, 30, and 40 people being shot is a bad result, and I do, but we keep the X, Y, Z plan for over 30 years. Stockton, California, we had 35 kids shot on an elementary school playground. And the only reason it was stopped at 35 is the shooter voluntarily shot himself in the head. The cops were not on him yet. They were coming. They were in route, but they hadn't, they hadn't closed in on him yet. Could have been in the 40s, but he, he chose to stop after 35. Okay, we should have known it before then, but there's, there's a big school shooting. So we had 10 years to fix it. 10 years later, we have Columbine, 99. We have 34 people shot, almost the exact same number. And the only reason it wasn't over 100 is because those two kids decided to shoot themselves in the head. Cops didn't get to their bodies for three hours later. So over 2,000 people in that school, they could have shot hundreds in the 45 minutes that we left them alone in that school, but they didn't. We lucked out. They only got 34. So there's 10 years with two examples. Okay, surely we're going to change what we're doing, but we don't. So 18 years later, we have Parkland, who shot 34 people, the same number, and the only reason it wasn't 50 is because after five and a half minutes, he just decided to leave on his own. Could have been more. And then now we've had Uvalde. And why we keep looking at this and we don't say the plan we've been using is a complete failure. We don't want 20, 30, 40 kids shot anymore. We got to do something different. But what happens is uh, when there is no shooting, and we'll be back into this in a few months, no shooting, no problem, don't talk about it. And then we'll have another shooting like Uvalde where 30 plus people are shot. Oh my God, we'll go crazy. Our hair's on fire. The media will talk about it. What do we do? We got to do something. We'll appoint a commission to look into it. We'll push some laws for our political agenda that really don't have anything to do with this. We'll bury the people shot. We'll put teddy bears on fences. We'll light candles and that'll make us feel good. We've done something. 
and then we'll hit the snooze button and go back to sleep. And that's, that's the cycle we've been doing for 30 years. Why we don't look at that and, and change to something that has a historical, mathematical, data-driven success rate is I can't understand it. Yeah, I know that it's emotion in politics, but I would have thought multiple attacks of 20, 30, 40, Pulse nightclub, 102, Aurora Theater, 70 people shot. I would thought that would shock us into, okay, we really have to do something to lower the victim count. But it's not. It's, it's, it's not at all. Well, where can people find you? What you know, services do you offer as far as like coming to, to help people plan? What training? Yeah. So we do presentations. I do presentations. I've got like at least 10 of those planned around the country at the end of the year. That's easy to do um, because it's me and a laptop. So we just have to fund travel and it's me and a laptop. So with, with all organizations, but with schools, we can add on to that a three-step plan where we do the presentation to understand the enemy and the environment. Then we do a tabletop exercise with a floor plan of whatever your building is. And we talk about, okay, if here, what do each of you do? And it, it ought to be different because you're in a different location. And we just, if what if it's here, what if it's here, what if it's here, what if it's here? And then we do the walkthrough uh, where we walk through and either I can do this and lead the organization through this, or I can tell you how to do it. And you do it long after I'm gone, where you walk through each office, cubicle, if it's in a school, the, each place, cafeteria, media center, and you say, okay, let's talk about your fight options. Let's talk about your flea options. Let's talk about your barricade options. Um, so even with not being armed, there are things you can do and I can walk an organization through that. Um, and then I do offer one, two and three day active shooter response classes that includes range time for those that are armed, whether it's cops, citizens, armed school staff, armed church security teams, one, two and three days on that that includes scenarios with three dimensional uh, mannequin dummies as realistic as I can now think to make them. And then I offer a two-day active shooter instructor class twice a year, once in April and once in October, um, for instructors that want to learn how I have developed this and use any part of it they want to in their career. And how do people get in touch with you? My name is Ed Monk. Uh, I have a Facebook page under my name. My email is my name, edmonk at AOL.com. My phone number, which is my cell, is 870-273-1113. And then Last Resort Firearms Training is our company. We also have a Facebook page there. You ought to be able to find me somehow with, with that. And I'll help any organization any way I can. Oh, well, Ed, thank you very much for coming on tonight. And, um, you know, and sharing your insight into this. I saw your presentation several years ago, I guess, at one of the tactical conferences. And it just makes so much sense when you, when you see the way you lay it out. And, you know, Unfortunately, you've already brought all this back up to the to the forefront, and I got a, a message from a listener. I want to hear what Ed Monk has to say about this. So I immediately sent the message, and thank you for responding to that and uh, coming on the show and, and speaking to our audience. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, the more people know, hopefully the better uh, decisions they can make about this. All right. And to the audience, I want to thank you for spending your time with us. Remind you of the That Wings Guy Show Facebook group that you can get into where we discuss episodes. And hopefully Ed will join us in the group. And uh, you can ask questions directly of Ed there or come up with contact him if he's willing to do that. But I know that your time is your most important asset. And thank you for choosing to spend it with us. <laughs>